seated. Leviticus chapter 1 this evening. On Sunday nights, if you're new with us this evening, we do go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and we begin the new book of Leviticus this evening. And uh, perhaps you'll allow me a short introduction to the book so that we can kind of get our bearings as we begin to go through it. Uh, the first five books of the Bible are known as the Law of Moses. They're known as the Pentateuch, known as the Torah to the Jews, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And like uh, each of the other four uh, books of the Pentateuch, the book of, of uh, Leviticus is authored by Moses. Now sometimes you can uh, get all of these so-called higher critics come together and they want to dispute who authored what and all these different kinds of things. I think it's better to spend your time witnessing to people. But anyway, that's none of my business, I guess. But the, the um, kind of, to me, the dominant uh, evidence for the fact that we can know that the book of Leviticus was authored by the Holy Spirit through Moses is that Jesus himself in Mark chapter 1 verse 44, also in Matthew chapter 8 verse 4, when he references Leviticus there, he declares Moses to be uh, the author. Also the Apostle Paul ascribed uh, the book of Leviticus to Moses in Romans chapter 10 verse 5 when he quotes Leviticus chapter 18 verse 5 with the words for Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law and uh, the man who lives by those who does those things shall live by them and so you have the witness of Jesus the witness uh, of Paul the witness of the Holy Spirit to Moses's authorship and uh, that's good enough for me I'll tell you, I'd have, I'd have settled for Vern and Jesus. But you throw the Holy Spirit in there and Paul, and I'm really settled too on it. The title of it, Leviticus, it comes from a Greek word meaning things pertaining to the Levites. And so an easy way to remember what Leviticus is about and, and its uh, uh, place of providing instruction to the Levites is just to kind of remember it as uh, Leviticus or something like that. It's about the Levites, and if you take the smaller word out of it, it helps us to remember that uh, it's, it's about the Levites. The Levites, uh, the tribe of Levi, was one of the twelve tribes of Israel, and uh, they were set aside to kind of administer the worship of the Lord for the nation. And so uh, they, the tribe of Levi, all of the priests came out of the tribe of Levi. They were descendants uh, specifically of, of Aaron. And, uh, but all of them were Levites. And so the book of Leviticus is essentially an instruction manual uh, for the priests on how to offer sacrifices in the way that God intended them uh, to be offered, how to handle a wide variety of issues that would come up among God's uh, people, and so how they could handle those different issues in a way that would honor God and then identify the Jews as God's people in the world. So issues having to do with sanitation, having to do with hygiene, having to do with uh, sexual practices, the poor, many, many other uh, things. I remember when uh, my first day when I worked, uh, uh, began work as a uh, lineman for the phone company, and uh, one of the first things they gave me was a big, thick manual. Here you go. It was everything about how to do a, uh, put a pole in the ground, put anchors in the ground, what kind of weight, how to, uh, you know, uh, transfer all kinds of cables and all these different kinds of things. And it was a manual. And many of you, uh, for those of you who are in nursing, or, you know, I mean, you, your manual is the education you get ahead of time. We got a little, uh, it's a little less demanding to be a lineman. But uh, almost all of us, when we get into some kind of area, an instruction manual is given to us. We're just not thrown into it so we can know how to please our employer or our company that we're working for. And in this case, how to please, uh, please the Lord. And so uh, this is what uh, would be highly valued by, of course, the Jews and the leaders uh, in, in that vein. In terms of where it fits in the chronology of uh, the Jews, the book of Leviticus uh, follows right on the heels of the end of Exodus. So you have the children of Israel, they have uh, built the tabernacle, they have erected the tabernacle, uh, God is pleased with what they've done, their complete obedience, He has uh, 
filled the temple with His Holy Spirit and His presence there, but they're still camped at the base of of Mount Sinai. It's not going to be until uh, the book of Numbers chapter 10 that they're going to pull up stakes and begin to move from Mount Sinai uh, toward the promised land. And this book of Leviticus, it covers that period of time between the end of of Exodus and then chapter 10 of, of Numbers. Only a period of about one month. So a very short period of time. Don't think of it as years and years and years going by. Just a period of about uh, 30 or so uh, days. That's, that's the, the period that it covers. Concerning its theme, the theme of the book of Leviticus is holiness. And so it, it contains instruction on how the children of Israel were to conduct themselves in an unholy world. God is taking them toward the promised land, toward Canaan. The practices of the people in Canaan, the pagan people, I mean, terrible. I mean, you couldn't even talk about half of them in mixed company, maybe not in any company at all on things. So not only them, but the whole world, very fallen around them, yet they claim to be God's people. Well, you can't live down to the level of the world and have any kind of uh, distinction in a, in a positive way uh, related to your God and who it is that you're following. And so they, they needed instruction on how to be different in a way that was like their God. God didn't want to leave it up to them. I, I hate man-made definitions of holiness. I don't have any time for that. I'm too old now for wasting time on dead-end things. So when we want to talk about holiness and living a holy life, I want God's definitions related to that. And of course, the example of holiness in all of human history uh, is Jesus. And, and so, uh, so here is this instruction on holiness. The theme verse uh, of Leviticus is chapter 19, verse 2, where God declared, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy. Really, why? For I, the Lord, your God, am holy, and you're representing me in the world. That's the high motivation and reason for holiness. Not to prove that I'm better than everyone else or this or that. I am now representing someone greater than myself as a Christian, a child of God in the world. And so the word holiness, it occurs a total of 87 times in the book. Chapters 1 through 16 talk about how to worship a holy God. Uh, how to approach a holy God. And then chapters 17 through 27, how to live a holy life before God in a very, very unholy world. Now, how valuable is that? How to approach a holy God and, and please Him in that approach. And then how to live for Him in a, in a way that looks like God in a very unholy world. It's very, very valuable to us, any child of God. You look at any of the polls, and I don't know how much of them to believe or trust or anything, but I read them just like probably you do too. But the polls that come out that, you know, kind of contrast professing Christians, and I know not everyone that professes to be a Christian is a Christian or born again or these kinds of things, but the, the differentiation between completely unsaved pagan people and those that claim to be Christians in, in terms of conduct, behavior, decision-making, virtually no difference between the two, two today in the United States of America. So holiness is a really, really important subject. And that's why I think it's criminal almost that most Christians have never read the book of Leviticus, much less studied it or know anything about it. That's why I don't like, it's my own pet peeve. I'm not putting it, anybody else down or anything like this, but I don't like people to make fun of Leviticus. I don't like, you know, leaping through Leviticus or, sorry you're here tonight and we happen to be in the book of Leviticus, apologies for Leviticus. I just don't like it. It's, not, it's just not in me on that. It, we need the whole counsel of God to be built into our lives and probably no subject, uh, well, probably the second most subject, I- important subject, well, I'm going to backpedal again for you. The book of Leviticus contains the two most important subjects, and that is how to approach God. It gives us an appreciation for Jesus, then how to live for Him. And we, we need that. And the, and the book of Leviticus uh, gives that 
to us. It's very interesting that among the Jews, it was customary for small children to begin their study of the Bible with Leviticus. Leviticus. Shouldn't they start them in Proverbs or Psalms or something? Leviticus? They did. And the reasoning was this. They thought that the pure, and speaking of children, should be engaged in the study of purity. They wanted them to be steeped in the subject of the holiness of God and the purity of God and the importance of purity in their own, in, in, in the children's lives. And parents wanted that to be established in the lives of their children in their childhood, in their earliest years, as soon as they could read, as soon as they uh, could write. A second reason probably behind all of that was so much of the sacrifices, the practices of the Jews related to the Old Testament comes out of the book of Leviticus. It would have constituted a child or a Jew's kind of daily life of everything going on around them. They would have hardly understood what was going on around them and the worship of God without an understanding of the book of Leviticus. So very early on uh, they were taught this. And so if children can do it, there's no yawning allowed for the next 40 minutes. You can yawn, but God sees you. And uh, listen, He doesn't use guilt or condemnation. I never said I don't. Now, now as to the, the importance of, of the book uh, to us, as I mentioned this morning, it's quoted over 100 times in the New Testament. Now, that's a lot of times to be quoted in the New Testament. So it tells us we cannot fully appreciate Jesus, who has given us access to a holy life, or appreciate how important holiness is to God, apart from an understanding of, of the book of, of Leviticus. And so it has tremendous relevance uh, to us. And, uh, for instance, Paul quotes in his first letter, maybe the most famous quotation from the book of Leviticus, where he declares, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in, is, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you as holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. So he quotes from Leviticus on that, and the challenge for even Christians to be holy in the light of the holiness of our God. Now chapters 1 through 7 will be in the book in just a moment. Just relax, everyone. Nobody order out pizzas just yet. Uh, chapters 1 through 7 give us very specific instructions concerning five key offerings that were a part of kind of the Jewish uh, life. And they were made by the children of Israel to the Lord. The burnt offering, the meal offering, the peace offering, the trespass offering, and the sin offering. Very, very important. And I don't want to lose anyone here, so don't say, wow, if I can't understand that, then forget it. The book of Leviticus is closed to me. But it is very, very important to us to understand as we're heading into Leviticus, heading into these laws, heading into these sacrifices, that these sacrifices and offerings were not given uh, by God to the children of Israel as a means for them to earn a covenant relationship with God. This is the mistake that the scribes and the Pharisees made. They took the law of Moses, they took the offerings, and they concluded that this is the way to establish a covenant relationship with God. This is the way that a person earns their way to heaven by keeping and doing all of these things. When we get to Leviticus chapter 1, God is already in a covenant relationship with the children of Israel. All the way back to Abraham, he established a covenant based upon himself with the children of Israel. He already has a relationship with him. By the time he gives these offerings in Leviticus, they already have the law of, of Moses that's uh, a part of them. They've already been redeemed from Egypt. So these offerings are not the means by which they are saved and able to enter into a relationship with God. God gives them these offerings now as a means by which they might maintain a relationship 
with God a relationship that they were already engaged in. And the point of it all is this, is that even in the Old Testament, God never intended the offering of these sacrifices or the keeping of the law of Moses or any human effort to be a means of salvation. It was, these were to be offered in response to God's grace extended to them in the covenant that they already had with Him, the relationship that they already had with Him. All right, let's tear into it. Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting. So it's been erected, being used for worship there at the, mount, at the base of Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock of the herd and of the flock, if his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd. Let's talk about this. Chapter 1 is all about what's called the burnt sacrifice. Uh, All of the sacrifices are very important, but it's very important for you as a Christian to understand sometime, either tonight in this moment forward, or maybe it'll be the third time you hear it somewhere in the course of these studies, but somewhere we need to have come up in our minds whenever we hear about a burnt sacrifice in the Bible that we understand what that means and what God is communicating through a, a burnt sacrifice. What made the burnt sacrifice distinctive among all of the other offerings is that the entirety of the animal was burnt and consumed on the brazen altar except for the hide that was given to uh, to the priest so it's called the burnt offering because it was completely burnt up into ash uh, in, in when it was offered as a sacrifice and, and so th- that's the single great thing to remember about the burnt offering What the burnt offering represented between the offerer, say you and me, who would then bring this offering to God, offer it up to the Lord, it would be burnt in its entirety. What it represented, because the the offering was entirely consumed on the altar, its purpose was to express a person's total dedication to the Lord. In other words, the person was saying, my life is completely yours. You can do whatever you want with, with my life. It is all completely uh, yours. Use it however you might choose. And so that's what uh, the burnt offering was. It communicated consecration. So the worshiper, he offered the burnt offering. It would be burnt up on the altar. But the worshiper would get to continue to live. But he is in essence saying to God, in terms of my self-will, my own desires, my own plans, it's gone up in smoke. Uh, that's all been burnt up here. Though I continue to live, I now live for you and I live for your purposes. So it was a, a total consecration. It's the, it is the commitment that God calls us to in the New Testament in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And, and it would seem clearly that the Apostle Paul has the burnt offering in mind when he speaks of this. And he said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So even in the Old Testament, the animal was consumed upon the fire, but the person got to continue to live as a living sacrifice now. My life is completely, 100% given over to you, God. The issue of your lordship is completely settled. And so here you have the privilege of consecration, of being able to live a holy life in this world, the privilege of being able to live a life dedicated to God. It's wonderful to be saved. I'm glad I'm saved. And I, I, I'll, I'll take salvation, a relationship with God, I'll take heaven every time. But I'm so glad that the salvation that God has provided for us isn't one of, okay, I forgive you of what you once were, but now you are doomed to continue the life that you've always lived. The same stinking, filthy, unholy, selfish life. How terrible would that be? It would be terrible. And we walk with the Lord for a while. This is why I can never understand uh, people putting down holiness in any way or even beating people up with holiness. It's a privilege to be holy. It's a privilege to be a new creation in Christ and to live a different kind of life. That's the attitude that they had. 
in the Old Testament toward holiness. That's what this offering was all about, was to say, we value not only our covenant relationship with you, God, we value the fact that we can live a different kind of life in this world. And I know that we have that same attitude in our hearts tonight. Holiness is a wonderful thing. Isn't it a wonderful thing? It's a wonderful thing to live, to live a holy life. And uh, so that's what it represented in terms of the worshiper, you know, uh, uh, 3,500 years ago and, and then the Lord. What it represented, the burnt offering, as a type of Jesus, uh, of Jesus or a picture of Jesus. Remember, everything in the Old Testament is a picture of him. Uh, Jesus spoke to the religious leaders and he said, You search the scriptures, for in them uh, you think you have everlasting life. But he said, These are they which testify of me. I can't wait to get into heaven. I hope there's like, uh, I, I, I don't want to get, uh, I'd like to get the MP3s to it, candidly, right now. Whenever there's, if there's a Bible study up there in heaven that talks about how every jot, tittle, line, precept, everything about the Old Testament, tied to Jesus as a picture. I, I can't wait to see it. Just the little bit that I can pick up out of the Scriptures is, is amazing. So as we go into this and we speak about the burnt offering as a picture of Christ, you'll know that I'm doing that by permission of Jesus. It's all intended to be a shadow or a small kind of representation of the greater thing that He would do uh, when, when He came. And so the burnt offering speaks of Jesus' complete... Uh, commitment and devotion to the Lord, his commitment to the will of God, uh, will of the Father, no matter what the Father demanded of, uh, of him, his obedience to the Father. Remember Jesus uh, declared and said, and he, speaking of the Father who sent me, is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please um, him. Jesus also uh, declared, remember as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before his crucifixion, and he prayed three times to the Father that this cup would pass away from him. But he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. It's the burnt offering. Okay? We, we cannot be like Jesus without that kind of a once and for all commitment to the will uh, of the Father uh, in our lives. Notice that the offering... There in verse 2, in the beginning of verse 3 there, that the offering was to be of the live stock. Uh, wild animals were not to be offered to the Lord. One of the reasons probably for that is because God views them as already His. Uh, Psalm 50, he speaks of, of the wild animals as, as belonging to him. The offering had to come from your own flock. And the reason that it needed to come from your own flock or your own herd is it needed to cost you something in order to offer it to you. And he's talking about here, he's talking about offering a bull uh, for, for the burnt offering. You remember when David, uh, there was a plague in the land of Israel and uh, uh, God, David cried out to the Lord on, on how to end the plague and the Lord spoke to him about uh, buying the threshing floor of Aruna and, uh, and, and, and then uh, offering a sacrifice on that, on that threshing floor in order to bring an end to that particular uh, a plague. And when he comes to Aruna and he, and he says, listen, I want to buy your threshing floor in order to offer a sacrifice here, Aruna said, you can take the bulls, you can take all of the, the yoke and the plow and all these things as wood then to burn the offering. And, and David spoke to him and he said, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. It was intended to kind of gouge us a little bit to be able to offer this offering uh, to the Lord. And so livestock in the ancient world, this was like sacrificing your tractor or sacrificing a car. I mean, it was a big ding for the for average person to be able to take a livestock and say, but I feel so strongly about the full commitment of my life to the Lord, I don't care what it costs me to express that uh, to, to the Lord. Notice in verse 3 as we continue, let him offer a male. So the animal had to be a male, even as Jesus uh, was a male, came into the world as a man. He was also, in terms of this sacrifice, was to be without blemish. They were only to offer their best to the Lord. They couldn't bring lame animals or injured animals or any, any kind of flawed or diseased animal to the Lord and say, oh, this one's got about 48 hours, let's get this sacrificed, you know, 
over into the Lord's hands and uh, they were to only bring their best to offer to the Lord. Again, it was a picture of Jesus uh, who died upon the cross for our sins without spot and without blemish. The whole sacrifice speaks of, uh, of that. Uh, uh, Peter speaks of the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. I think one of the most uh, wonderful things to realize in uh, bringing this offering to the Lord is when you brought the sacrifice to the priest that the priest would uh, examine the offering for a blemish or for an imperfection they wouldn't examine you just your sacrifice had to be without spot and without blemish and praise the Lord for Jesus and when we go to get into heaven that we're not going to be examined for being without spot and without blemish but our sacrifice will be examined for that and of course uh, he is matches that uh, perfectly what a substitution we have in him notice in verse 3 also that the offering he shall offer it of his own free will just as Jesus laid down his life and offered it as a free a free will to the Lord he said no man takes my life but I lay it down of myself now he did that for our sins he laid down his life willingly as a sin offering we'll get to that in future future chapters but here it's talking about the fact that he also laid down his life willingly in order to provide us with the means to be able to live a holy life and so uh, he did that willingly uh, for us and then it tells us further that the sacrifice was to be brought to the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord and then the worshiper the one that was offering the sacrifice shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him now when the guy when the offer would bring uh, the sacrifice there and before it was going to be killed they would he would lay his hands on the head of the animal actually it, the language here is kind of weaker than it actually is in in the hebrew it means more than just laying your hands on the head of the animal it means literally to press your hands down uh, on that animal and i think that has to do with what what comes next and what the worshiper would experience in the death of the animal while he's he's got his hands bearing down on on the animal but he had to lay his hands uh, on on the animal what that symbolized was as we saw before in exodus uh, transference and substitution it was a way of saying that my sin is now transferring over to this animal now that's going to be killed and this is what I deserve because of my sin and uh, and then this animal this innocent animal that you know that just an innocent animal is now going to have to die in order for me not only to have salvation but in order for me to be able to live a holy life as a sinful human being again all of it a picture of Jesus and what it is that he has uh, done for us so when they that's that's what they would look at the terrible price that would have to be paid by an innocent party or an innocent victim in order for us to be able to live a holy life so again you get into Romans chapter 12 verse 1 as I quoted it and I beseech you brethren by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy uh, uh, acceptable to God which is your reasonable service Paul does not make that demand of us to offer our lives as a burnt offering or a living sacrifice to God a commitment to live a holy life he doesn't he only does that after he has spent eleven chapters in the book of Romans uh, talking about driving home the point that it's only because of Jesus' sacrifice that allows that to be possible so chapters one through eleven in Romans all about salvation all about the cross all about what Christ has done for us in that and now the proper response to all that Christ has done for us is now to commit ourselves to him to live a holy life it's the same order in in the Old Testament now we're told here in uh, in verse 4 that the sacrifice would then be accepted 
uh, by God on the worshiper's behalf to make atonement for him. And the word uh, atonement uh, in that passage, uh, in, in the Hebrew, it, it's a word that means to cover. Now the word atonement is going to be used over and over and over again uh, in the book of Leviticus, so we need to establish uh, just what it means. The animal sacrifices could not take away man's sin in a full and a final way. Uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews declared, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. So why did God allow these sacrifices to pr provide an atonement or covering in the Old Testament? He allowed these sacrifices to satisfy His righteous wrath against sin, His righteous judgment against sin for a time until the propitiation or the full and satisfying payment for our sin was provided through Christ. Now that's another word. We're learning a lot of new words tonight, aren't we? Learning about atonement, learning about burn offering, and then propitiation. Again, I want to challenge us as Christians. I mean, people get video games, uh, they go crazy about the latest movie or some fad or some book. Um, uh, people get into Star Wars or they get into the uh, Lord of the Rings series or all these different things and they'll learn all of the names of everyone that's in the series. They will learn Narnia language. Or, I mean, people will invest unbelievable things into learning stuff that's just going to pass away is, is nothing. It's just kind of a fad sometimes in, in human history. And then somehow, when you bring them into a church, you're not allowed to demand anything of the listener. You just got to do a song and a dance and bring out the French poodles, have them prophesy and send them back. Anything to keep everyone alert and awake. And I really want to challenge us as Christians. It's very sad what's going on right now. And don't get sucked into it. Uh, we're intended to know this book and there's not that many words that are outside of the culture that we need to learn, but I'll tell you, in as unholy a culture as we live in, any biblical words that they have abandoned, I want to learn those words on principle. <laughs> they've abandoned them to the neglect of the culture as we see it. So they've abandoned something very important to me. So learn these words. Don't be afraid of these words. And sometimes I'm at different places. And I understand if you get up on a Sunday morning and you talk about sanctification and justification and propitiation, nobody knows what the words mean maybe as they're coming to church the first time and you don't define what the words mean. So I'm not crazy. I understand you know, the audience that, that I'm dealing with or the, the congregation that I'm dealing with on on things. But it doesn't mean that we get so dumbed down that we don't know what these words mean. When you run into the word propitiation, and it's all through the Bible, not a lot of times, but it's all through the Bible, it means a full and satisfying payment for our sins. And that's why Jesus is referred to in the New Testament as the propitiation. Why? Because He is the full and satisfying payment for our sins. When God looks, when heaven looks in all of its holiness and heaven looks at the sacrifice that Jesus made for the forgiveness of our sins, it satisfies the holiness of heaven and it satisfies the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the justice of God. Heaven is satisfied with that sacrifice and that sacrifice alone. So that's why on most Sunday mornings when you hear me give the message and we talk about repenting of our sins, putting our faith in Jesus Christ and His death, burial, and His resurrection, and putting our faith in Him as the full and satisfying payment for our sins. I'm just using common language for propitiation. And that's what He is. And that's what God calls us uh, to trust in him, him as. So He is the full and satisfying payment for our sin. Only Jesus. I mean, the Bible declares that while the Old Testament sacrifices provided a covering for sin. It kind of got them out of God's sight uh, in, in a sense. It still allowed God to be just and the justifier of, of sinful man. But only Jesus' death upon the cross fully satisfies God's righteous wrath against sin and allowed Him to fully and completely wash our sin away. And so the Old Testament sacrifices, they provided a temporary covering or solution for our sin until Jesus came. 
in order to provide that full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sin. The word atonement is used 45 times in the book of Leviticus, so it's important to understand it. You can't understand the book apart from it. And what I've just done in the last five minutes has saved us all a bunch of time because I'm not going to tell us what it means every single time uh, we hit it, at least not with that kind of, uh, of depth. Now he goes into verse 5, some of the details regarding the sacrifice of the animal. He shall kill the bull before the Lord. Now this is fascinating. Uh, a burnt offering was offered morning and evening uh, just as a, a daily practice by the Jews. God's law uh, demanded that. And, and it was just, the, the, and when that uh, burnt offering was offered in the morning and the evening, it was always offered by the priests. The priests were representing the people, and it was an expression of, as we begin the day and we end the day, Lord, we commit our lives completely to you. Very, very beautiful, wouldn't you say? Beautiful way to begin a day and end a day. So the priests would offer the burnt offerings that were to be offered for all of the people. But here, when a person would bring their own burnt offering to the Lord, they had to kill the animal. They killed the animal, the bull. So he put his hands on the head of the bull, and then there was a particular artery that they you know, located and knew how to uh, sever that artery so that the animal could be killed as, as quickly as, uh, as, as possible. And, and the result is, as he would take and plunge that uh, knife in and cut that particular artery on the bull, this, this warm flow of blood would get, begin to pour out of the bull. And then after just a short period of time, the bull, because of the loss of blood, it would begin to weaken. Its legs would begin to, to buckle. It would collapse. And then uh, and ultimately it would die. And all of it is a picture of Jesus. All of it's a picture of Him. Remember when He made his way to Calvary following his trial before Pilate. As he's making his way on the morning of his crucifixion, he has been savagely and brutally beat twice. His face is, is so marred, the Scriptures say, you could not recognize him for the person that he was. That's how savage the beatings were. On top of the two beatings, he was also scourged uh, by uh, the uh, Roman soldiers uh, there at the Praetorium. And so with the scourging there and all, the tremendous loss of blood related to the beatings and the scourgings, and it would appear that as he's trying to carry that cross to Calvary, and it is an incline to get to Calvary from the Praetorium there in, in Jerusalem, he began to buckle under the weight of it, probably collapsed, and what did they do? They called a man by Simon, a Cyrenian, to come over and help him carry the cross all the way to Calvary. It's all a picture, all the way back here into the book of, of Leviticus. Now notice that they would then, he would kill the bull, but then the priest would step in to handle the blood. And the priest, Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And then he, the uh, worshiper, shall skin the burnt offering. So he would then take the dead animal and he would skin the hide uh, off of the animal. And again, the skinning is a picture of Jesus upon the cross, just as Jesus was virtually skinned alive before he ever got to the cross. The 39 stripes that were laid on him by these uh, Roman kind of executioners, they were pros at what they did. They were sadists for the most part in what they did. They loved to see people in, in pain. They loved to see blood. It's what they did every single day in, 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 in uh, uh, interrogating people with, with the scourging. 39 stripes, cat of nine tails, uh, lead and, and metal and pottery worked into the in, into the uh, leather tongs and they would then put them on the back and then yank them out. The metal and the pottery and things put in there with the intent of pulling muscle away, pulling flesh away. And we're told uh, by historians that speak of how all that went on in the past that it was nothing for a person at the end of a scourging for vital organs even to be exposed 
uh, as they would then make their way uh, to be crucified. And so it, here is the animal is skinned, a picture of how it is that Jesus' uh, skin largely removed even before he gets to the cross, the innocent uh, flayed and crucified by the guilty. The pieces of the animal then... Uh, they would cut the animal into pieces following the skinning of it and probably in order to help it burn more quickly rather than just one large animal on there would be cut into pieces. And then the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put them uh, put fire on the altar, lay the wood in order on the fire. Then the priest Aaron's son shall lay the parts, the head and the fat in order on the wood that is on the fire by the altar. And so they would then lay the parts of the animal now to be burned. And he, again the worshiper, shall wash its entrails and its legs with water. And the entrails are the intestines of, of the animal. So here you've got, he has, he has slaughtered, uh, he has killed a bull. Uh, he has skinned a bull. The bull has been cut into pieces and placed on the altar. God says, stop, I want you to wash the entrails, the, the intestines, and I want you to wash the legs of that bull. Now, remember, this is a God who created the heavens and the earth. He, he doesn't do anything out that's mindless. He doesn't do anything that's unnecessary. This is all a picture of Christ. What, what do you do when you take the legs of a bull, freshly cut, freshly butchered bull, and you wash them with water? What do you have? Uh, fresh meat is going to continue to bleed and exude, exude blood. So what you're going to have are legs that are covered with blood and water. When Jesus was on the cross, we're told that because it was a holy day and they wanted to hasten the death of the three men, Jesus and the two thieves, that had been crucified on either side of him, they wanted to hasten their death in order to get them off of the cross before the Jewish holy day, that Pilate gave the order, go out and break their legs, which would have hastened their death. The Roman soldiers came to Jesus, and he was already dead. It surprised them. And they wanted, though, to be sure that he was, was dead and hadn't just kind of fainted or that the respiratory system and heartbeat had become so shallow, but they weren't able to notice it. So what did the soldier do? He took a spear and he went up underneath Jesus' ribs and he pierced uh, under there, pierced up through the vital organs there, came up under and he pierced the pericardium, which covers the heart, and he pierced the heart. And we know that because when he took the spear back out, what came out was blood and water. Where'd the blood and water go? Down his legs. It went down his legs. It's all a picture, not only of Jesus as a sin offering, but him as a burnt offering, giving us the privilege of being able to live a holy life as, as Christians. And then the priest shall burn all, and this is the great distinctive characteristic uh, of the burnt offering again as I mentioned the priest shall burn all on the altar as a burnt sacrifice an offering made by fire a sweet aroma to the Lord and so the offering of this burnt offering was a sweet fragrance to the Lord and that's just a human way of of communicating that the Lord was satisfied with the offering um, if you've ever been really really hungry and you've gone by some place where uh, they're barbecuing beef or something like that. I mean, the smell of, of barbecue, that's a sweet smell to a hungry person. The full commitment of God's people to Him and to His plan in this world is sweet to Him. It wasn't the blood and it wasn't the animal and all of that supremely that was the thing that became a fragrance in, in the nostrils of God. What blessed Him and was sweet to Him was that this was a sacrificial expression of his people, of their desire to be a holy people, to be a consecrated people to him. And that's why he was pleased with the offering when it was offered. It also speaks of, uh, to the Lord's pleasure with Jesus as a sacrifice for us. Paul wrote in his letter to the church at Ephesus, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. He said, Therefore be followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us, and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. 
What a picture of him. Now, he continues in verse 10 uh, to give his instructions for how uh, a burnt offering was to be offered to him if it was a sheep or if it was a goat. Now, why would he allow sheep and goats to be offered as a burnt offering? Why didn't he just demand bulls of everyone? Well, a bull, not everyone owned a bull. Not even remotely everyone owned a bull in those, in those days. That was a rich person who, number one, owned a bull, and number two, could afford to sacrifice it. So a bull was a rich man's offering to the Lord to express his consecration to God. But for the common person, it was more common for them to have a sheep or a goat, and so they were allowed to offer that to the Lord. And it still represented every bit as much a sacrifice to them as the bull did to the richer person. And so God, in other words, what God is setting up here is he doesn't want anyone to be excluded from uh, consecrating their life to God, dedicating their life completely to God, and then expressing it. So he said, if his offering is of the flock, of the sheep, or of the goats, as a burnt offering, he shall bring a male without blemish. And again, much of it is repetition. Here's a new, uh, something new related, uh, new insight into all of this. He shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. Jesus, when he was tried by Herod in the praetorium in Jerusalem, and then he carried the cross to Calvary. Calvary is to the north of the old city, the ancient walls in the old city of Jerusalem. And that's where Jesus was crucified. And so these offerings were to be offered on the north. Again, all a type and a picture of Christ. And the priest Aaron's son shall sprinkle its blood all around on the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces, uh, it into its pieces and its head and its fat, and the priest shall lay them in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. And he shall wash the entrails and the legs with water. Then the priest shall bring it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Then in verse 14, and if the burnt offering uh, of burnt sacrifice of his offering to the Lord is of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or young pigeons. So now he's allow he allows birds as a third category of animals that could be brought to him for a worshiper to express their desire to be fully consecrated to God and to his will. Now this was the offering of a poor person. And, and again, a bird for them was as great as a sacrifice for them as a bull would have been to the rich or a sheep or a goat would have been to the middle class person in those days. God didn't want anyone to be excluded from being able to come and to publicly say, He is my Lord, I want to live fully for God. And so uh, they were able to also offer birds. And the priest shall bring it to the altar, wring off its head, and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out at the side of the altar. And then he shall remove its crop, interesting, with its feathers. Uh, Jesus had his beard plucked out, we're told by Isaiah, as he prophesied as a part of the whole day of his crucifixion. They reached in and plucked out whole sections of his, his beard. Really just terrible, terrible and cast it beside the altar on the east side into the place for ashes. And then he shall split it at its wings, but he shall not divide it completely. The animal, the bird was not to be torn in half because, it, again, it's a symbol of Christ. Its bones were not to be broken. Jesus' bones were not broken on, on the, the cross. A sacrifice couldn't be offered like that. But it's interesting that the wings of the bird after its death were to be opened up even as Jesus was crucified and his arms were opened up uh, wide upon, upon the cross. Uh, the beautiful, beautiful imagery. And he shall split it uh, at its wings, but shall not divide it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt sacrifice of offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. They had no idea what they were doing. They were doing it because they obeyed God and wanted to obey God. 
we have the ability to look all the way back, understand how to interpret Scripture, understand how to see it's a type and a picture of Christ. We're able to appreciate these things, the price that was paid, not only for our forgiveness, but the price that was paid for us to be able to say, God, I want to live for you. I want to be different in this world. I want to be holy in this world. And not by all the crazy ways that man comes up with, even religious men are trying to define holiness, but I want to be holy in a way that looks like you and represents you in the world. It's a gift. It's a privilege to live a holy life. It's a sweet-smelling fragrance to the Lord when we come to God and, and speak to Him and say, that's it. That's it. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's what Paul did, said. It's not about me anymore. It's not about what I want. It's not about my pleasure. It's not about any of those things. It's about you. It's about your plan. It's about who you are. It's about living for you. That's where life is to be found. And that's a fragrance to God. It blesses His heart. Again, not to earn anything from Him, but to bless His heart because of how good He has been to us already in saving us. And there might be a few of us here tonight, you have never ever settled the issue of Jesus' lordship in your life. You've accepted him as a sin offering, but you haven't accepted him as a burnt offering. You live your life virtually exactly as you lived it before you ever came to know Christ. No discernible difference between you and everyone else in the neighborhood, everyone else in the family, everyone else in the workplace, everyone else in whatever kind of place, school or wherever it might be. And you, and you look at it and you know, my life isn't dedicated in that way to God. And it's good to remember tonight, a tremendous price has been paid for you to live a holy life and a Christ-like life tonight. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward right now and to lead us in worship. And we're just going to spend some time meditating upon the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and has made all of this possible for us. And just to be able to say, Lord, my life is yours completely. You spend it however you want. For those of you who have never settled the issue of His Lordship in your life, you say, well, I know I'm on my way to heaven, but He's not getting much out of me because I'm as stingy as can be about my life. That's no kind of life. That's no kind of life. I'm not, I'm not beating anybody up. I'm not trying to pick on anyone. I'm just telling you, you're missing the whole thing. You're missing the glory of this life, this side of, of heaven. And just a time to be able to say, no, I'm going to let him smell that fragrance from my life tonight when he, as he sits on his throne in heaven as I just surrender myself completely to him under, while I'm under the weight of just thinking about the beauty of my Savior who's made it all possible.